You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, I do want to say thank you so much for having me to Craig and to the Advent. Um, I've spent a lot of time sitting in these pews with a lot of you, and I've never stood in this pulpit, um, but it's an honor to do so. So thanks for having me and thanks for being here. Uh, Over the next two days, we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus healing the blind man from the book of John from two different perspectives. So today we're going to see that Jesus is the light that heals And tomorrow we're going to see that Jesus is the light that reveals. So if you'd like to open up your pew Bible, you can. We're going to be in John chapter 9. And I'll be reading from John chapter 8, verse 12, and then from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as Jesus went along, he saw a blind man from birth. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world." And after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this past fall, my church in Richmond went on a church retreat, and one morning, in the dining hall at breakfast. We were in a big conference center, and so the dining hall was bustling with people, and a little boy who was about four years old came up from behind me and hugged my legs. And so I turned around and bent down to see who this little boy was, and I realized that I didn't know him. And he looked at me and realized he didn't know me either, and he burst into tears. (laughs) because I was not who he was trying to hug. I wonder if you remember the feeling of being a small child, being so small that you really only encounter the world from about the waist down. I remember especially being in crowded places and uh, the, the world of adults swirling around up above me and feeling like I got glimpses of that world, but really only that. Well, this is how I imagine the life of this blind man being. The gospel writer doesn't name the blind man, but we're going to be spending a lot of time with him over the next two days, so I figured we should give him a name, and I'm going to call him Tom. Um, From birth, Tom has lived in a world that wasn't made for him. Because of his disability, Tom would have spent his life as a beggar, sitting on the side of the road, on the ground, And just like the little boy who came up to me at this retreat and mistook me probably for his mom, Tom only had hints of the world moving around up above him. He may have sensed the sounds whooshing by him, uh, passing him by. Maybe he would have felt uh, the movement of people's clothing. 
but Tom couldn't see the world, and, and it seems like the world didn't see Tom. When the disciples passed Tom, they look at him, but they don't really see him, just like the rest of the world. And instead, they observe Tom as a specimen for theological inquiry. It's almost like they're looking at an animal in the zoo from one side of a two-way mirror discussing the animal's movements, knowing that the animal can't see them back. You can almost feel their eagerness to philosophize about this fascinating topic with their rabbi. And so they ask him, what do you think, Jesus? Whose fault is it that this man is blind? Was it his own sin, or was it the sin of his parents? The disciples held a belief that was common in the ancient Near East, that if someone is suffering, like Tom, who was born blind, someone must have messed up along the way. Now, this question, this idea, it might seem jarring to you, especially posed in this way. But before you cast this idea aside as completely outdated or ancient or maybe even barbaric, I want to invite you to consider the possibility that you might actually ask this question all the time. Whether we speak it aloud or not, whether we use these words or different ones, we are desperate to explain the suffering of the world so that we can control it and ultimately so that we can keep it away from us. Just like the disciples, we see someone else's pain and we want to draw a clear line in the sand around it in order to keep it away from us, keep it at a distance. I'll give you an example. Um, Let's just say that a perfectly healthy young dad goes out for a light jog and comes home and drops dead. I wonder if you've heard of something like this happening. When I think about that situation, I can feel in my gut, my reaction welling up. Um, At the same time that I feel just visceral horror for his wife, I also immediately start to explain the reasons why this happened to him. He must have had a heart condition. He must have run too far or too long, or maybe it was too cold outside. And in my desperation, my explanations start to turn darker. Maybe he had some secret that we didn't know about. Maybe he didn't die in the way that they said. There has to be an explanation. Because if it can happen to him, it can happen to my husband. And an explanation is the only way to keep my panic at bay. So there's got to be an explanation. There has to be an explanation. I wonder if that sounds familiar to you. I wonder if you have ever asked those questions in the face of unspeakable tragedy. Or maybe like Tom, you've been the subject of people wondering, people's attempts to explain your own suffering, your own tragedy. The thing is, tragedies like this threaten to dismantle this ironclad belief that we have that we are in control of our health, our wealth, our happiness, that if we do the right things, if we live a respectable life, 
we know the right people and manage our money wisely, things will turn out okay. Bad things might happen to other people, but there are reasons for that. They won't happen to us. We try to keep at bay the idea that we're fragile, that, in fact, we're dying. That's what makes, I think, Ash Wednesday so awkward. I wonder if you've ever felt this. A priest or a pastor on Ash Wednesday leans down very close to your face, and as they're putting dirt on your forehead, they tell you, once you were nothing, soon you'll be nothing again. And what's in between is not in your control. I noticed last week when I was imposing ashes that nobody really knows how to respond to that. Some people, like, awkwardly smile at you (laughs) or say, thank you, Uh, (laughs) because it's a bit awkward, you know? Just like that unspeakable tragedy, Ash Wednesday, it pulls back the veil and shows us our fragility, which we are so desperate to try to cover up and control. I wonder if you've been confronted by the darkness of your own fragility. Perhaps you've experienced the sudden feeling that all the lights in your life switched off. One writer calls depression darkness visible. Do you know that darkness? Or maybe it's the darkness of loneliness and longing, the feeling that no matter what you do, you can't seem to create the life that you thought you'd have. Or maybe, like Tom, it is the darkness of disability or chronic illness or a terminal disease. The pain or the disease has trapped you in a life you never imagined for yourself, and you're helpless to change it. If you've ever suffered in a way that seems inexplicable, then you likely know the loneliness and the shame that can come from that constant wondering, questioning, What did I do wrong? What did I do to cause this? What did I do to deserve this? I think these are questions that we all ask. And, you know, Jesus doesn't condemn the disciples for asking the question that they did. But he doesn't answer it either. He doesn't play by their game. And he won't give them the kind of certainty that they crave. Instead, Jesus replies, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. I wonder if perhaps part of why Jesus responds in this way is to say to us that suffering, and even inexplicable suffering, is a normal part of the human existence of the Christian life. It's not good. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But suffering and frailty and death, they're inescapable on this side of our final restoration. And Jesus is poking holes in that worldview, that belief that we ought to be able to keep suffering at bay. And more importantly, Jesus is saying that even when we experience suffering that is inexplicable, that we can't control or explain, even that suffering isn't outside the realm of God's redemption. You know, this brings up some uncomfortable questions. 
Because if our suffering isn't outside of God's redemption, outside of his control, then why doesn't he stop it before it starts? Why didn't he heal Tom long ago? Well, Jesus doesn't answer that question here. He doesn't say that it's an invalid question, again. He doesn't say that you shouldn't bring that question before God. I think God can handle that question. But what, Je- what Jesus does seem to be saying is that there's a more important question to be answered. Instead of answering a question about the past, whose fault is this, and how can I explain it and avoid it, instead, he answers a question about the future, Where can we find hope? In the face of inexplicable, uncontrollable human suffering, in the face even of death, Jesus doesn't give us control, but he does give us himself. So turning back to our story about Tom, Jesus stops debating with the disciples, and he turns his attention, his gaze, towards Tom. The man whom the world saw but never really saw. Jesus turned all his attention on him, and in this weird and wonderful turn of events, he stoops down and he spits on the earth, he makes mud, and he smears it on Tom's eyes. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. In no uncertain terms, he claims to be none less than the incarnate I am the very source of light, the creator of the sun and the stars, the one from whom all light and life comes. I am. This light, it can never be possessed. It can't be controlled or claimed as our own or even explained. It is only and always to be received as a gift. The incarnate I am stoops down and makes mud from the dirt, just like he fashioned humankind from the dust of the ground. Remember, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And he recreates Tom. He creates for him full and abundant life. And Tom went and washed, and he came home seeing. And you see, don't you, why... Jesus refrained from answering the disciples' question. Any explanation that he could have given for Tom's suffering pales in comparison to what Jesus has offered him. He claimed to be the incarnate I am, the very source of light and life. And then he demonstrated it by bringing light and new recreation life to Tom. In the face of such wonder, the question of who's at fault, it loses some of its bite. Not to say that Tom may never wonder, but Tom has met the light of the world, and there's one thing that he knows, that once he was blind, and now he sees. You see, the disciples, they wanted to identify the villain in Tom's story so that they could close the book on the tragedy of his life. But when Jesus looked at Tom, he didn't see the end of a story. He saw a story half told. Because Tom encountered the light of the world, the best was yet to come. 
a new light has dawned on the horizon, shedding light abroad in this world, in this dark world. And Tom had become an unsuspecting and unusual witness to God's kingdom come. So, friends, sisters and brothers, there is no darkness so deep that the incarnate God cannot penetrate. There's no depth so far that Jesus cannot come for you. Even death itself, the final monument to our human frailty, it can't defeat him. Jesus is the light in the darkness. He's the one who brings light and life to our very world, even here and even now. Will you allow that light to shine on you, to liberate you, to heal you, to recreate you? He did it then, and he's still doing it today. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do feel the darkness all around us. Would you come and shine your healing, liberating, recreating light on us so that your works might be displayed in us? In the name of Jesus, the light of the world, we ask it. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.